from Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. Hear now the word of our Lord. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Let's pray. O Father, grant that your grace may teach our hearts to fear and grace our fears relieve. Speak your word into our hearts, do good to our souls, and honor yourself and the saving work of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, fans of C.S. Lewis at least will understand when I say that the white witch lives in Thyatira. You remember her, don't you, from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? She's cold-hearted cruel master she thinks of her domain and then Edmund walks out of the world and into Narnia and she's stunned she knows the prophecy that a son of Adam and a daughter of Eve two of each in fact will come and then everything goes haywire for her and so she's about to strike him dead when she has a change of heart and with the charms that she has, the, the Turkish delight, the promise to Edmund's vanity of, of a crown and kingship with her, alongside her, that if he'll just bring the other brother and two sisters into Narnia, why then, he can have it all. And Edmund, at least for a time, bites into that hook, not realizing that there's a hook thinking, this is going to be great. And all the while, she's plotting their destruction. Well, if you think that's the story of fairy tales, then you need to be reminded that that's the story of this world. We live in Narnia, and there is 
a white witch in Thyatira who aims at the destruction of God's people. And Jesus responds. He comes and he, in love, speaks to his church. And there are many ways to approach a text of this length in what might be a brief sermon, who knows. There are lots of questions that we all have as we come to it. I want to, I think, ask this question and answer it from the text. What does this passage tell us about Jesus? This passage tells you that Jesus is the king and judge of his people, and it tells us three things about his kingship and his judging of his people. It tells you that he is, he is the friend of sinners who can be trusted. He is the protector of his church who should be honored. And in the third place, he is the husband of his bride. And she should wait for him because he gives her a future. Those three things, I want you to think about them with me. In the first place, this, this kingly judge who makes such strong statements, you need to understand at the very outset, is the friend of sinners. And we can trust him and we should. He's, he comes to him, them uh, as a friend. That seems incompatible to some people, right? A, a judge and a friend. I mean, the, the love of a friend who's faithful always. How can that stand next to the kinds of statements Jesus says of what he will do? How are these things in any way compatible? Aren't justice and love incompatible, we would say? Tim Keller, in a great book called The Reason for God, answers this in this way. All loving people, he says are sometimes filled with wrath, not just despite, but because of their love. If you love a person and you see someone ruining them, or they're ruining themselves, it it makes you angry because you love. You do something about it because you love. You'll say something about it because you love. In other words, the opposite of love isn't isn't anger or hatred, but the opposite of love is indifference, neglect. And Jesus will not ignore his church. And so he speaks into her because he loves sinners. Now he says five things here under this heading of friendship. I just want to highlight five things. Notice verse 18, that he knows them intimately. He knows us in our particular situations. This is a letter to Thyatira. Many will know that, that uh, there are so many things in this letter that are obscure to us, mainly because this is the city which is least known to us. It's the longest letter with the hardest things to interpret, and we know the least about their situation. They have no significant military, political, or administrative responsibilities under the governance of Rome. But though some have said this is the least important city, you understand that there are no unimportant churches. And the letter is written to the church, and he does not overlook even what we might think is unimportant. He's a friend to sinners, and he tells it like it is. Verse 19, I know the good and the bad. What's The good, how does he commend her? She's passionate about the right things, he says. I know that you are growing in many ways, in in love. 
in faith, in service, in perseverance, all these qualities which are very commendable. He's pleased with them. And that's where he begins, right? She's flourishing. In fact, she's, she, her latter works are exceeding the first. Not necessarily that she's growing in size, but she's growing in Christ-like qualities in many ways. And it's the good. And as a good friend of sinners, he points that out because he's pleased with his people as he sees that. But then he tells the bad, right? He doesn't hold back. And what is the bad? Verse 20, I have this against you, that you tolerate Jezebel. And in fact, some have joined in with her in her sins. We live in a culture obsessed with the idea of tolerance, right? We think it's in some ways the highest value these days. Tolerance used to mean recognizing the right right of others to disagree with us and honoring them as people made in the image of God and giving them that right and not assaulting their persons. But now tolerance means you should never say something's wrong. If you tolerate it, means you would never say that's wrong. But Jesus just does just that here, right? He calls a spade a spade. He says, this is wrong. In fact, in most of the letters, not all, but in most of them, he highlights something that's wrong. He's intolerant, and he wants them to be more intolerant. It's kind of a startling thing, isn't it? It's one huge theme of the Bible, in fact, right? There's something profoundly wrong with all of us. And we don't like to hear that, especially when it hits home right between the eyes. But he's a friend. And Proverbs says that the wounds of a friend can be trusted. But an enemy multiplies kisses. When somebody is willing to speak truth to you, even when you don't want to hear it, they're being a friend to you. Beware when everybody speaks well of you and all your friends only have and always have kind things. Uh, There's many ways to apply this text here as you consider the friendship of Jesus to sinners. One is to simply say "This this, this ought to be a model for us of friendship. I had a campus minister in college who didn't feel like he had loved you until he sat you down and told you something wrong about you. Now, he always started out the right way. He'd sit down, and you knew it was coming, because he'd sit down, he'd look you in the eye and say, you know that I love you. (laughs) Yes. But uh, that's the place you have to start. People need to hear that before they're willing to hear what's next. You know that I love you. And And then to me, this is the way he said, he said, you know, you and I are a lot alike. I was like, hey, that's great. I admired the man. Yeah, we both have the same problem. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, we're, we both, I, I, I've seen it in your life, we both struggle with procrastination. And he was dead on. He identified one of my most significant sins that still today I struggle with. But he loved me. And people walked away from that meeting with that man and said, that man loved me. I love him more because of it. Oh, thank you, Roger Hershey. It's a model for us. We don't do it because we lack the courage or we, we long for the approval of others. 
it's also, I think, another way to apply this is to look at it this way. One of the things he calls them out about is their toleration of Jezebel and participating with her in sin. And that sin is idolatry on the one hand, worshiping a different God and trying to blend it in with the true God, but also what it led to, which was sexual immorality. And how does it apply that Jesus is the friend of sinners? Well, let me say this. If you are here and involved in sexual immorality, we want you here. Not, as Jesus makes clear, not to teach or to call evil good and good evil. But here, to consider the mercy of God in Christ and the offers of forgiveness and reconciliation. A change, right? And if you have friends who are involved in sexual sin, the ministry of the church is for them. The gospel is for broken people. If it isn't, we're all lost, aren't we? Haven't every one of us broken the commandment not to commit adultery in the heart, with the mind, our affections are twisted, our imaginations, our words, our bodies? If it isn't the case that the gospel is for us, then we're all lost, right? But if you are a member identified with Jesus and his church through a profession of faith in Christ, and you advocate in the church as Jezebel was doing, that I'm okay, you're okay. We can all just get along the way that we are, and it doesn't really matter if it feels good, then it has God's blessing. Anything you call love reflects God's love. Then Jesus is against you, and he wants you to change. He's a friend. He's a friend who can be trusted. He's a friend to people with major problems and he hasn't abandoned them he didn't not write them a letter he gave himself for them and he's faithful to them right john newton put it this way about the friendship of christ one there is above all others well deserves the name of friend his is love beyond a brother's costly free And knows no end. They who once his kindness prove, find it everlasting love. Which of all our friends, to save us, could or would have shed his blood? But our Jesus died to have us reconciled in him to God. This was boundless love indeed. Jesus is a friend in need. Could we bear from one another? What he daily bears from us. Yet this glorious friend and brother loves us, though we treat him thus, though for good we render ill. He accounts us brethren still. Place your trust in this friend of sinners. Now, the second thing I want you to see is that this king, this judge, is the protector of his church and should be honored. Verses 19 to 23, he begins this way. I I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. And a number of things we might point out here. We've got to ask the question, who is this Jezebel, right? You know that she's a woman in the church raised perhaps herself up as a prophetess saying, I speak the words of God, the 
but Jesus says she's really speaking the deep things of Satan. And she either resembles the Jezebel of the Old Testament, or this is actually her real name. Jesus may just have placed this name on her to remind you of what she's like. You know that King Ahab in the Old Testament, it is said of him that marrying her was the most evil thing he did. She incited him, as we read in the Old Testament reading, she incited him to basically murder off Naboth, or she had it done, in order to steal the vineyard. She uh, compromised Israel by trying to unite the worship of the true God of the Old Testament with the gods of their neighbors, the Baal God. She tried to kill the prophets, the true prophets. She tried to kill Elijah. She did all kinds of things to try to destroy the Old Testament church. And though dead for over a thousand years at this time, her spirit, as it were, lives on in this woman. And what's she doing? Well, it seems it's something probably like this. Thyatira is a main uh, commercial center for the production of all kinds of, of, of things like wool and dyed goods. You remember that Lydia in the book of Acts is, is from there, the seller of purple cloth. But there were all kinds of trade guilds or or unions that uh, oversaw linen workers and leather workers and tanners and potters and bakers and slave dealers and bronzesmiths. We know all this from archaeology. And it was necessary to be a member of a trade union or guild in order to carry on your work. A baker didn't bake and a potter didn't pot. And a shoemaker didn't make shoes unless you belonged to the guild. But each guild had its patron deity in whose honor feasts were held, complete with meat sacrificed to that false god and sexual immorality as you might to honor the patron deity who secures your economic well-being and guards your industry. You might sleep with the temple prostitute as a way of communing with the God. That's what they did in the ancient world in worship. And not to attend the feast. To fail to appear at the the after party at the business convention might mean losing your employment, being kicked out of the guild, and living in poverty. And it's possible that one of the things that Jezebel is saying to the people is you can have it both ways it's okay Jesus understands grace covers all your sin who in the modern church might resemble this well I think church leaders who bow to the spirit of the age and stamp their approval and blessing, not God's, on sexual unions other than one man and one woman for life. Say it's okay. This is the way the culture is going. Or church members who go along with the culture of their employment, even when it requires you to sin. It's a very different thing than working for an employer who sins, as we all do. 
But when the culture requires sin of you, that pressure can be enormous. If you're reading the newspaper lately, you know a lawsuit's been filed uh, against Mount Sinai Medical Center in New York City by a nurse for requiring her to perform uh, she who had a long record of conscientious objection to abortions. They required her to participate and help the physician and I won't describe the details, in that procedure. And the legal brief notes that that the hospital had known for for four or five years about her religious objections. Nevertheless, they ordered her to participate. They threatened her with disciplinary measures if she refused. And then they dramatically cut her on-call assignments after she refused to sign a pledge to participate in future abortions. It's hard. And it happens. Here in Thyatira, just to go back, one of the fruits of this is that they were engaging in sexual immorality. Some people today, maybe sitting here, would say, what is it with Jesus being so interested in the intimate lives of people? What is it with the church being so interested in the intimate lives of people? And the answer is this, because the body is for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. It's his. You're just a steward of what belongs to him. And furthermore, as we think about, for instance, church leaders worldwide, you know, the struggles of some of the major denominations, who are teaching and advocating against the Bible on this issue, you need, to, you need to be reminded, right? We all need to be reminded that the arrangement of intimate relationships between one man and one woman in, in an exclusive and committed monogamy until death parts them isn't just some moral declaration of God, though it is. And it isn't just an issue of fidelity between the two. You can conceive of other relationships in which people could be faithful to one another for life, though the arrangement itself would not be according to Scripture. The issue isn't even can two people or any combination be faithful to each other. The issue is can we be faithful to God? Marriage is a drama of the divine love of the bridegroom Jesus and his bride, the church. And he takes to himself an adulterous wife. And he brings her and forgives her and he cleanses her and he restores her and he's determined to see her faultless and blameless and radiant and glory with him. And he will not have another. And he will not let her go. And so we should have the pattern of fidelity that Jesus has for his church. That's the, that's the reasoning behind marriage. That's why it exists And what's Jezebel doing? She's encouraging the destruction of people's family life, spiritual life. And the judge comes to protect his church. And he protects in a variety of ways. In the first place, he's patient. Why do I say that's protective? He's protecting them from the immediacy of judgment. 
he suffered long with her. In fact, he goes out of his way to say, I was patient with her and I gave her time to repent. But she wouldn't. She loved darkness more than light. And she didn't want it. And you know how that can grow on you. This is the way that we all do it at some level, right? We think God's patience is a sign of his permission. We think he's been long delayed in doing anything about this. It must be okay. Instead of seeing it not as his permission, but as his invitation to repentance. Right? And he protects even her from the immediacy of what her sin deserves. But, well, (laughs) we do this all the time. A farmer once wrote a letter to the editor. It's sort of a quaint story. Maybe only farmers would appreciate it. Dear sir, he wrote, I've been trying an experiment. I have a field of corn which I plowed on Sunday. I planted it on Sunday. I cut it and hauled it to the barn on Sunday. And I find that I have more corn than all my neighbors this October. Farmer sent the letter off, sure that the editor had no response to this sneer implied. I only do my work on the Lord's Day. But here's the reply I printed in one sentence beneath the letter to the editor. God does not make full settlement in October. It's, it's true. Do not... Do not be deceived into thinking that he countenances and condones because he hasn't struck you. Though that's what your heart says. So he's protecting them from the immediacy of his judgment, but he's also protecting his church. And he says this about Jezebel, that I will throw her onto a bed. And uh, commentators, the translators fill it in. Uh, A bed of sickness, a bed of suffering, a bed that leads to death. He's going to judge her. She would not repent. And the church shouldn't tolerate her, he's saying. You shouldn't be so tolerant, allowing her to teach this in the church. You should, he's saying, separate her from the church. Why? In order to be faithful to God about sexual relations, in order to protect others who might be misled by her example, in order to warn others of the dangers of unrepentance, in order to defend the honor and glory of Christ who married one bride, in order to restore the repentant sinner, not, he says, not take the sword against her, not legislate against her, but rebuke her. You know, I wonder sometimes in our concern for healthy marriages and healthy sexual expression, are American churches known more for how we deal with our own sins or how we want the government to deal with the sins of others outside the church? Are you more worked up about how everybody else is living Or are you more worked up so that you are praying for how the church is living? Is church discipline or the culture more important to you? It's very telling 
And he says, you, you don't take the sword against her and you don't bring Rome into it. You as a church, my people, deal with this. And then he says to the straying believers, I'm going to protect the church from your example. Now these are, these are believers who have fallen into grievous sin after her example. And they are not threatened with final judgment as she is, but they, he says, will suffer great trouble chastisement because he loves them he's going to correct them and then there are her children and i think not here physical but spiritual those who have followed along with her in her mentality he says i will put them to death trifling with sin is dangerous this isn't the only place in the bible where that example is in in first corinthians The believers who were desecrating the Lord's Supper, some of them, he says, have fallen asleep. They've they've died even and grown ill, some of them. Or Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. You see what he's doing? Jesus is determined to protect the church from evil. And to protect not just this one, but the whole church. That's why he goes on in verse 23 and says, pointedly, when I do this, what's going to happen? All the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and gives to each one as his works deserve. Everybody will become aware of this because he's concerned for the whole church and for his glory to protect his honor. You will know that I am the Lord. Right? It's extraordinary the way that he comes to bat for to protect and defend the church because he loves sinners because he wants to spare it's his inclination to be merciful but he does not want his people aligned in this way now the last thing is this that this king is also the husband of his bride and he gives her a future which may even more explain why he's taken up cause. He's the husband. He's not a neutral party. He's offended. He's planned her future. And he's going to be certain that he sees her there in that day. It's a future. Three things about it and here we'll close. It's a future in verse 24 that you have to wait for. It's a future in verse 25 and 26 and 27 in which you will reign with Christ it's a future in verse 28 in which you will have Jesus himself it's a future you have to wait for in the first place look at verse 24 Jesus acknowledges that this is not the problem of every particular Christian in the church to the rest of you he says who've not Learned what she's been teaching you about the so-called deep things of Satan. To you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. Hold fast until I come. It's a, it's, it's a future. But what do you do if this is you? What, what do you do if you are in sexual sin? I would say this to you, that you should flee to Christ. There is no forgiveness away from Christ, but in Christ. And he offers himself to you. And sin desires to master you. 
But what the gospel does is the gospel frees you because if you are in Christ, you've died with Christ to the authority of sin to enslave you. Some of you feel so enslaved by sin in this area. The gospel rescues you by uniting you to Jesus in his death. And he died. And you died with Jesus. And you died to the authority of sin as a master to command you. You do not struggle and fight against this kind of sin in order to get free of it. You struggle because you've been made free of it. Though it indwells and it's fighting a war and it wants to win, Jesus is guaranteed that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world and his dominion over you is stronger than any other authority. Flee to Jesus to be freed. Learn what the gospel means and flee temptation. Cut out of your life, Jesus is saying, the sources of temptation And those of you who are married, embrace your spouse in regular intimacy would be Paul's advice in 1 Corinthians 7. And view it as spiritual idolatry. Recognize that the root of it is not sexual sin. The root of it is the love of a different God, the love of pleasure, um, any number of other. And recognize that you are to have no other lover but Christ and return to Christ. He sought you when you had strayed. He knew that you had other loves when he came to die to rescue you. He can help you. What should we do when members are trapped, when friends and people in the church are trapped in sexual sin? Love them out of it. Right? We're certainly not saying, you know, there are just no non-Christians here and um, there's uh, no adulterers here and nobody around here struggles with sexual sin. We're not saying that. Jesus said if you lust in your heart after a woman, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. None of us would be welcome. But Jesus is saying that those who claim Christ, brothers and sisters, to be a part of his bride, who are trapped in this, should not be tolerated and permitted to just go on as if it's okay. We call them to repentance privately. In love, we say, I love you. You need to come back to Jesus. And then publicly if we have to, because Paul says we must warn that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so you may declare them a non-Christian because you love them and want to win them truly to Jesus. But what do you do if this isn't you? And for some of you, it isn't your struggle. Jesus says you hold on to the gospel. Keep yourself from being polluted by the world. And if you think that you are standing strong, be very careful because you are weak. It's only in your weakness that you are strong. Do not be fooled. He places no other burden on them. It's a future you hold on for. It's a future with authority. You will co-reign with Christ, he says. To the one who conquers and keeps my works to the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. If, if Look, if, if under the authority of others, an employer, 
you suffer loss for the sake of righteousness. Jesus is saying to you in the new heavens and the new earth, you will reign with me and exercise authority with me and rule the world with me. You know that Corinthians says, don't you know that the saints will judge the world? That the saints will judge the angels. You're going to co-reign with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. And so if you overcome in this life, meaning, ironically, if you suffer loss at the hands of others because you will not sin, though they tell you you must, it will all be different in the future that awaits you. And finally, there's this. It's a future in which you will be married to the king. Verse 28, I will give you the morning star, he says. The morning star is defined for you in Revelation 22 when Jesus says, I have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David. I am the bright morning star. You see what he's saying? You know what a king wants? He wants a queen to share his throne and to share his intimacy. Where is everything headed? To the marriage supper of the Lamb. What does the bride wear? She makes herself ready. Washed white in the blood of the Lamb, clothed in righteousness. And what does she get when the door opens? She gets the king. That's what he says. You get me forever. More intimately than any marriage in this life could even approximate. And so you can side with Jezebel, the scripture says, the idolatrous queen, and you can share her pleasures now, but be cast down with her. Or you can wait in anticipation for the wedding at which you will be royalty at the side of Jesus forever, where there are pleasures forevermore. So trust this friend of sinners, my friends. Honor the one who protects his church. And wait for the appearance of the bridegroom. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let us pray. Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have mercy upon us. Forgive us, O Lord. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Empower us to walk in your ways. Pour out your spirit upon us that we would be zealous to walk in your ways. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the glory, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.